Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, here to talk with you about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday, broadcasting live here on WBSM, and also via video streaming on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. So if you just go to our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, you can click up in the upper left-hand corner for the Spooky TV link, and that gives you our in-studio cameras. We have four, count them, four of them including close-up angles that go right up Moniz's nose. And we also have our chat room there as well. And the chat room is going to be hopping tonight, I'm sure of it, because we are going to have a fantastic discussion with our guest, Steve Volk, who has written probably one of the most important books in the paranormal to come out in the last, oh, I don't know, 20 or so years. I mean, this thing's going up on the shelf, along with uh, some of the other classics that we've discussed here, past and present in the show. And we're going to get into all that in just a minute with our guest, Steve Volk. And later on, we're also going to talk to Beth Kehoe Flick, who's going to tell us about an upcoming fundraiser uh, tomorrow uh, on Cape Cod to uh, help raise money for the Michael J. Flick Memorial Scholarship uh, Memorial Fund. And uh, it's, a, it's a bike ride, Moni. So, you know, you had your bike running, you could be out there riding on it. Borrow mine. Okay. Actually, I can't let you borrow mine, but it's, it's a long legal story that it's... We'll, we'll get into that some other time. All right. But, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little bit later on, let you know how you can get involved with helping with the Michael J. Flick Memorial Fund. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But it's also linked up on my Facebook page, Tim Weisberg, if you want to check it out in advance. So we teased this last week. Last week's show, you know, it was interesting. We'll say that. It was definitely interesting. I, I, I guess I've heard from some other listeners uh, that last week's guest – uh, was not he was on other shows, but he wasn't calling himself a parapsychologist. So apparently, he got his degree, I guess, between the time he was on some of those other shows and our show. Not sure about that, but uh, we did we did have some uh, some fun with him last week. Uh, but we did allude during that show to this week's show and about the new book Fringology: How I Tried to Explain the Unexplainable and Couldn't. Steve Volk is a longtime staff writer and regular contributor at Philadelphia Magazine. His work has been published by Rolling Stone, Vibe, Men's Health, Men's Journal, The New Republic, The Philadelphia Inquirer, and The St. Petersburg Times. Folk has received dozens of state and national journalism awards and appeared on numerous radio and television talk shows in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, and now, of course, uh, worldwide. He lives in Philadelphia, and he joins us tonight on the phone, actually via Skype. Uh, so, Steve, thanks for joining us on the show, and thank you for writing this book, and we'll get into all the reasons why I think it's so important, but... Uh, did you set out when you were doing this to kind of shake up the paranormal world? Well, first, thanks so much for having me. I, I really, really appreciate it. And oh, we're gosh, I like the book so much, I feel like maybe I should just let you talk about it for two hours. <laughs> I, and I think that I could, uh, and then some. <laughs> because, you know, we talk about the paranormal here all the time, and, and we try to get into some of the more philosophical debates about belief and non-belief. Uh, but I think this is especially interesting because you're you're kind of coming at it from an outsider's point of view, I mean, you're not somebody that's quote-unquote in this field, but at the right. same time, you also have a personal connection to it. So it, it works on many levels. 
Yeah, well, to answer your first question, I mean, I, I wanted to knock people back a couple of steps and get them to sort of readdress what they're bringing to the stories and the data that they hear. And um, and I have to be honest, I mean, I've, I've found the skeptics uh, in some ways a more appealing target because I never hear believers sort of talking about how rational and, and smart and superior they are. Um, the believers in general are at least acknowledging that there's some kind of mystery at work, even if at times they, I think, you know, graft maybe too specific an interpretation onto what's happening. And so I might be a little more aggressive in the book toward the skeptics, but generally speaking, yeah, I kind of wanted to shake up people on both sides if I can. Well, I think that's certainly been the case for the people in the paranormal world that I've talked to that have read the book. They all say, you know, the, the true believers, they all say that it, it made them kind of second guess what they thought that they always thought. Uh, the skeptics that I talk to, of course, nothing's changing their minds. No, and that's, and that's what's so funny about them. <laughs> you know, you know, to, they, they call themselves me, open-minded skeptics, but I, I don't think I've met one yet that's open-minded about possibly not being skeptical. Yeah, they're, they're not too terribly open-minded, no. And I just, you know, it's funny, I was just reading... Um, Chris French just uh, posted something, and w- whenever we, you know, finish here after midnight, I will, um, I will probably post something in response. But Chris French, you know, one of the leading uh, UK skeptics, I actually quote him, and and I think among skeptics, he's one of the more um, open-minded ones. But he just wrote a uh, blog post for the Washington Post, in which he um, says that you know. Uh, a lot of neuroscience is showing that the mind seems to be wired to create these beliefs and to create beliefs in something supernatural. And he writes that from an evolutionary perspective, the costs of thinking we see meaning when there is none vastly outweigh the costs of failing to see meaning when it is present. And he cites absolutely no evidence of this whatsoever. He has no lick of data anywhere in sight, doesn't even try to present one, just throws out there this idea he's got that it's worse to see meaning when there is none than it is to um, miss meaning that's there. And and it's just, to me, another example of just how, how ridiculous and self-satisfied uh, these guys can be. It's uh, uh, unbelievable to me. But anyway, you caught me. I, I read that just before we got started here, and, and I just think that's what people are up against when they're dealing with skeptics. I mean, he's made some sort of radical assumption for which he has not a, a single shred of scientific data, and yet there it is on the Washington Post. That's pretty much constant for most skeptics. They make up their mind, then make up data. Yeah, well, and in this case, I mean, he just he just flatly asserts this: the cost is greater. Okay, Chris, whatever. You know, and I like him. He's actually more reasonable than most. Um, he's not going to go sort of all James Randi on you and start hurling insults around, but. Um, so, I mean, it, to, to again take it back to that first question that we started with, I do think that shaking up the skeptics or getting them to question things is extraordinarily difficult. And, um, I, and I don't know if my book will do that yet or not. I know that I just found out that the Skeptical Inquirer just made an inquiry about it at HarperCollins uh, last week. So, you know, we'll see when they weigh in what they think about it. Well, I mean, we did have uh, Ben Radford on the show. He's a, a good friend of the program, and he's worked mm-hmm. at Skeptical Inquirer. And, and when we had him on, you know, he seemed to be one of the few skeptics that actually would ad- admit that he'd be happy to be wrong, you know, that he'd be happy if we could find some way to prove it, but that he just hasn't seen it yet. 
I think maybe is the I don't want to say is the is the data mounts more and more in the believer's favor, but as more and more people are experiencing it and willing to come forward with the experience, I think that the skeptics have to be a little bit more willing to say, okay, maybe I'll budge on this eventually. Bear in mind that Brad also said he's seen some things that he can't explain. Mm-hmm. He's not going to leap forward and, uh, uh, as what he said. I'm not going to say it's this or that, but I have, quoting him, I did see stuff I cannot explain. And for well, a skeptic, that's actually saying something. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you something. Um, you, you used a phrase there that as more people come forward with their stories, that was one of the big motivations for me in, in writing the book is that um, you know, for years I've kind of kept this family ghost story to myself, at least in any major public way. I've certainly told friends about it and occasionally colleagues where I wanted to just sort of see how the, this story landed with other people. Um, but I've basically kept it to myself, and, and over the years, I started to realize, well, wait a second. I'm a professional storyteller. People like ghost stories. This is a, a terrific story. Um, and in the journalistic vernacular, it's low-hanging fruit. You know, paranormal stories, they're out there. Mm-hmm. People do experience these things, whether they're, you know, turn out to actually be paranormal or not. They experience these strange things. And generally speaking, as, as a profession, we don't go around and collect these stories. But if, if we did, they would be highly entertaining. And so the whole idea to me was, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and out myself, tell my own story, investigate a bunch of areas within the paranormal and tell other people's stories. And hopefully I, I get the sense that people feel like they need a permission slip. To, to tell their stories, you know what I mean? Because these sure. stories are often laughed at. There's a phrase I used in the book at one point about embarrassed Americans that I feel like there's this subclass of people who've had something like this happen to them and they keep it to themselves from fear of embarrassment. So part of the purpose of the, of the book really is to draw people out and say, look, it's safe to tell your story um, because we're all bringing biases to this, whether we're skeptical or whether we're believers or not. That's common ground we should all be able to get together on. So when somebody rejects your story, you've got to remember that in part they're just coming from what they believe in already. It's not really a reflection on you. So, you know, like tell it. And it, let's at least get all this out there because you have to wonder, you know, when you look at the data, I'm filibustering here, but when you look at the data, 15 to 30 percent of the population um, believes they've either seen a UFO, had a um, – uh, a psychic experience or had direct experience of a ghost. It's like 15 for UFOs, 20 for ghosts, and 30 for, for psychic experiences. And when you look at it across the whole population, it's you know 50% or more that has had some sort of psychic experience, I mean, or some sort of uh, paranormal experience. That's a huge, huge figure. Have half the people in your life told you about something strange that happened to them? Have one in seven told you about the UFO they saw? I don't think so. And, mm-hmm. and the reason is because people keep this stuff to themselves. That's silly. And the, the skeptics of the world sort of are to blame for driving all this underground, I think, you know, because so much of what they use is sort of ridicule. And um, so I wanted to try and redress that with the book. Well, one of the phrases that you do use in the book frequently, too, is the idea of the paranormal taint. That once, uh, and it's not what you're thinking, Costa. I see you over there snickering. But, uh, you know, it's the idea that once you come forward and you start 
delving into this world of the paranormal, there's a stigma attached to it. And do you do you think in the time, obviously the time that it took you to write the book, things have changed. Uh, but do you find that, that that stigma is starting to go away a little bit as the paranormal becomes more quote-unquote mainstream? Or is it something where now it's almost like, you know, you know the, the taint may be removed, but now it's more the, the paranormal snickering that will happen? I, I think the taint's still there. I mean, I look, I, you know, you should see the looks I get from colleagues, from fellow journalists, when they find out that I wrote this book. And they respect me because they know me, and they, they know me here in Philly as a guy who covers the courts, crime, uh, you know, politics, lots of human interest features. But for somebody who doesn't already know, when it first comes out that, yeah, I just wrote a book where I explore this old family ghost story – they kind of rear back, and I, I've been calling it the second head look. They look at me like I suddenly sprouted a second head, and they, and they have to totally reappraise me. Now, for the most part, it's going well because the people who've read the book – and I've got a, a, one friend in particular, a huge skeptic who told me he was afraid to read it because we're friends, and he, and he just thought he was going to hate it and, and think less of me. For, for writing it now fortunately he read it and feels entirely differently like he loves the book so that's terrific but that taint is so powerful that when people first hear about this they do look at me like I, I um, they like they never knew me in the first place and I, I've got that taint all over me I can tell you that because uh, I too am a journalist in a little bit of a different capacity I, I mean I work in a smaller market obviously than Philly I'm here in New mm-hmm. Bedford uh, but I'm a sports writer and I work right. in the Boston sports media and when word got out that I was doing paranormal stuff and, you know, normally a few TV appearances that I made here and there, people come up to me and say, hey, didn't I see you on, on this? And as that's happened, you know, I'm dealing with, you know, 350-pound football, football players that are looking at me funny. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's one of those things, though, where they'll laugh at you to your face or they'll make jokes about it to your face. And then when there's nobody else around, they'll pull you aside yep. and say, actually, you know, I had yep. an experience myself one time. Yep. And, and I've, I've, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and I think that if, if, if you or I and people in our shoes can serve that role of at least making people feel comfortable telling one person their story, right. uh, then maybe they'll be comfortable telling everyone. Yeah, I've had that same experience multiple times. Even more intriguingly, um, there's one guy who kind of gave me a fair amount of uh, guff about this, and I heard through uh, some back channels that, um, you know, he read the book, was surprised at how good it was, um, you know, read it sort of uh, expecting to, to not like it. And um, he hasn't come back to me yet to tell me that. But, um, you know, it's those things are nice. And, and he apparently confided to uh, someone that had opened his mind about some experiences he had that he's he dismissed. He he just said, well, it had to be nothing, even though he had no real explanation for it, because he couldn't he couldn't accept that something unexplained had happened. So he just sort of dismissed it entirely, and he's had to sort of go back and acknowledge to himself that, well, you know what, I, I don't know what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, when see. you when you started, you know, forward with this, uh, I mean, first of all, the idea of sticking your toes in this water uh, when you when you need to keep respectability as a journalist. I mean, and I'm saying all this. Obviously, our audience understands that. I'm speaking of the perception, not the way that it, it actually is, but sure. the perception that it is. And so when you go sticking your toes in this water, then you are going to achieve some of that taint on yourself. And uh, But at the same time, it's also going to be hard for you to work 
to, to maneuver your way around the paranormal world coming in as a journalist because already the true believers are a little skeptical about your intentions. Right. Yeah, I faced a, a fair amount of that. There's at one point in the um, chapter on UFOs, I write about how the people of Stephenville were sort of busy Googling me um, because they felt like they needed to check me out. And um, there's actually a British guy named Steve Volk who's done some really skeptical stuff. So people had to figure out that I wasn't the the British guy because he's done some apparently some really harsh uh, sorts of uh, reports and things. And um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, and it's funny. There's this, there's sort of a stigma on both ends when uh, Chris French understood that I was coming from more of a believing perspective. You know, there was a little bit of hesitancy on his part to deal with me. Richard Wiseman rejected talking to me at all. Well, I was going to say, anybody that talks to you, Steve, obviously can tell that you're not the British Steve Volk by the accent. But then again, to someone from Texas, you know, I think all us Northeasterners might, have sound like, might as well sound like we're from the UK. Well, I, for a lot of people, all they had was my name because of the email. You know, I, I emailed people and things like that. So it, That was a, a very interesting case, the Stephenville Lights, because you had some people that came forward with the sightings who kind of had a lot to lose in the public eye. Uh, you know, not necessarily people who... Um, you know, might suffer severe ridicule, but people whose names are associated, you know, law enforcement officers, you had people uh, involved in, uh, you know, prominent businesses in the area who were coming forward and saying that they saw these things. Yeah, I, I, I have the utmost respect for Stephenville in general and the people I met, you know, there in particular. I'm actually really looking forward to getting out there at some point to promote the book and do an appearance and and say hi to some people again and enjoy the barbecue. Um, the Stephenville chapter to me was really moving because um, I'd always wondered sort of from a, a sociological perspective, what does it mean to a town to become identified with an event like this? And um, I found that it was, it was really difficult for them because there were people who um, wanted to know what it was that they saw or that the people there saw, and then there were other people who were simply embarrassed by the whole episode and thought it painted them as uneducated hicks. And so I really had to kind of find a way to negotiate that and figure out quickly, you know, because a lot of times I was just standing in shopping centers and saying hello to people and walking up and introducing myself, and I had to try and quickly assess, you know, sort of what their stand was and where they were coming from just sort of I'd, so I'd sort of know, you know, who who I was dealing with. Is this guy into this topic, or does this guy resent the fact that I'm here? I mean, luckily for you, you know, you met a, a lot of Texas hospitality. At least they weren't slamming doors in your face and oh no, you know, shoving no. you out of the way. But no, then again, I mean, it seems like Stephenville's kind of made up their mind that they don't want to become the next Roswell, right? And it, what I actually what happened was some people just sort of either darted away, like literally just kind of walked away. When I introduced myself, or or they would just very politely say, "I'm sorry, I don't I don't want to talk about that." And there were a couple of people who said, "You know, well, I saw something, but I'm not talking about it," and and wouldn't, you know, wouldn't really wouldn't speak about it. And it's funny because as a reporter, you well in sports it's different, but the kind of reporting I do, um, a lot of times people say they don't want to talk, and then they come back around and do, mm. you know. And um, but not in this case. When <laughs> when people didn't want to talk, they really didn't want to talk um, because I, I think they did feel that sense of stigma. And also, when you're dealing with uh, people who are already of a certain culture, 
you know, and we, we kind of make associations, broad generalizations about, you know, the, the, the Texas people and the Texas mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, for them to have been faced with something like this, I mean, if this had happened somewhere else, they might be a little bit more wide open to the possibility of discussing it. But you're already dealing with a, a community that, for one, is probably predominantly Christian, uh, right. For the most part, and people who are extremely blue collar, and this is just the kind of stuff that you don't discuss. I mean, it's it's not that they won't even talk about it with you. They're probably not even talking about it at their own dinner table. Yeah, they're very careful about who they talk about it to. I mean, people told me this. They're very careful about who they talk about it to within Stephenville itself, and so people kind of have to feel each other out, you know, to, to see whether or not they're willing to discuss it. Um, and so kind of the, you know, the people who are interested at, at, have sort of found each other and talk about it. And then the people who, who wish the town never had this happen, of course, they don't discuss it at all. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird though. It's almost like <laughs> these, these things, these things that happen, it's almost like they pick the right spot. You know, for, for some reason, Stephenville was, was the spot for those sightings. You had the Phoenix Lights in the 90s. I mean, it seems like for some reason it happens at these locations for a reason. Well, dude, I'd, I'd like to address that in a second, but, you know, I just had a thought occur to me that, you know, like to, to me, and I, I feel like I, I proposed this in the chapter, it comes through. I mean, the way out of this, right, this sort of quandary is for people on both sides to understand what a UFO really is. You know, I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's an unidentified flying object. By definition, it's, it's not an alien spacecraft. It's also not a weather balloon or ball lightning or a secret military project, right? It's unidentified. And there should be no stigma involved whatsoever for people to be able to say, you know, saw something in the sky, didn't know what it was. That should be really easy. And it also pushes us, I think, into the position we need to be in, which is if it's unidentified, then there's something of a mystery there, and, and then, therefore, there is some reason to look into it. And so if we, if we set aside that idea that it might be E.T. long enough to look into whatever it might be, I, I think we'd be better off, you know? Um, but that also includes, like I said, setting aside um, for, for the moment sort of any commitment to the idea that it's ball lightning or any other typical sort of skeptical explanations just accept that we don't know what it is but i I think that people force a conclusion on these things and so you know i I still can't believe that um uh the skeptical inquirer published a thing about the stephenville lights claiming that it was flares yeah i mean it just if you speak to the witnesses there there's just no way that flares came sailing at that speed for that many miles trailed by military jets at one point you know doubling back and and going back in the other direction it just it wasn't military flares same explanation used in phoenix yeah but at least in phoenix it didn't some of these maneuvers that they talk about in stevenville are even more dramatic you know what i mean so but yeah same explanation well, you mentioned the need for from the skeptics to to come up with some tidy conclusion, uh, mm-hmm. but you, you say it frequently throughout the book. Probably the three dirtiest words in this whole debate is "or I don't know," and right. neither side wants to say it. I mean, the believe the true believers will say it, but when they say it, they're kind of giving you that wink and nod of, "Come on, we all know it's paranormal." <laughs> 
but uh, the, you know, for the skeptics to say it, it's it's like it's probably the equivalent of Matt Moni's getting a haircut. <laughs> and, and you know what they do too is they'll they'll say like, well, since flares would explain some pieces of this, and we know people misperceive some things. The, the the parts of this signing that flares don't explain probably shouldn't have been described the way they were described. And since it's and, and so there's just this whole long chain of thought, right, that leads up to, well, you know, aliens are an extraordinary claim and flares are mon, you know, mundane, we know flares exist. So since flares are more, more logical, we might as well just say it was flares. And and stop there. And like to me, the Stephenville case is a fascinating case precisely because, to me, it's a classic UFO unidentified. And and you know, even the flying object part of it might be sort of too specific. There's a there's a group that uh, advocates the idea of unidentified aerial phenomenon, and and maybe they're closer to correct, right? Maybe that's a way to even reduce the stigma around this even more just for now call it unidentified aerial phenomenon mm-hmm. but, you know because then, then we're not insisting there was a craft necessarily you know and i think that uh and you wisely you know stay away from the alien abduction debate in the book as, as you mentioned because you would have your own uh bias toward it and uh my, my colleague here matt moniz has spent many years working in alien abduction and even if you can get 75% of the world to agree on UFOs, and 75% of them said, you know what, I think they might be alien spacecraft. It's the idea of abduction is just so beyond uh, their grasp. And you talk about it a lot, too, in, in the uh, chapters, talking about things like uh, neurotheology, uh, the idea of these uh, fantasy-prone people. I mean, there are certain segments of the population that just want this stuff to happen to them. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, particularly in relation to UFOs, well, and, and ghosts as well, um, I found people who who did think that this conferred upon them some sort of special status, right? Like, I, I met one person um, in particular who um, claimed to have a device implanted in their leg, and didn't want it removed and I met them at a UFO conference where they were going around and talking to a lot of people about it and it just seemed to me that the reason they didn't want it removed was not it it just didn't make much sense right Mm -hmm. and it it just struck me that you know they, they walk around here as a kind of star by saying that this happened to them when to me like you know it if you have an alien device in your leg, you would just sort of owe it to people to have it pulled out and examine and show, you know, what what's going on here or that something's going on here that's unexplained. And so it made me wonder if, well, is this person really just walking around saying this because they, they like the status and gives them and they don't want to be proven wrong? They don't want to have it removed and find out that it, it was a scarred over piece of glass, you know, that ended up in their leg in childhood or whatever it might have been. I, I want to say something else real quick about the abduction thing, though, too, because one of the passages I regret that I've had a chance to sort of reconsider is is where I admit that I had my own biases and, and, and thought of the abduction thing is 
potentially boiling, boiling down to some kind of you know, psychological explanation or something like that. That's, that is true, and, I, and I'm glad that I was that honest. But at the same time, I, I'm not sure I was entirely honest with myself at that point. Mm-hmm. And there's a point since then where I was reading it where I realized that, you know, another reason I've rejected this, I don't like it. I don't like the idea that there could be alien abductions going on. And rather than even admit that, it's far easier for me, because I don't like the idea, to just say it's not happening at all. Because, you know, yes, there are people who've come up with this sort of comforting spin that, you know, they they mean us no harm and somehow this is going to be good for us, right? You believe in alien abduction. But if something like that was really going on, it's horrifying. How very very James Randi of you. (laughs) To not, What's that now? I said, how very James Randi of you to not want to admit that it could be real because it, it, it scares you. Yeah, well, and I've, I'm admitting that now, though. You know what I mean? That, that, like, now that I look back at that passage, I think that, you know, that's another reason that I felt the way about it that I did. And I don't think I even had admitted that to myself at the time that I wrote that section. What I've been dealing, like Tim said, with the subject for close to 20 years. I've worked with literally hundreds and hundreds of abductees mm-hmm. as some of them very famous a lot of them just your average person uh, sure. from down the street and my specialty deals with multiple cases in other words i deal with abductees that aren't just taken by themselves they're taken with other people multiple witnesses so that takes the psychological reasoning right out the window because two people aren't having the same imagination uh it, just by definition and what scares people is it's something that, like what you're saying, you're afraid that it could actually be happening and in turn maybe thinking eventually it could happen to you because you have no control over it. Now, a lot of people throw the idea right out the window thinking it's you know just something that happens to them at night. But in actuality, the actual statistics, and like I said, I've been studying it for 20 years, most abductions happen during the day. 65% of them happen during the day, right. not while they're in bed sleeping, sure. usually while driving. Now, if they're sleeping and driving, we already have another issue going on. But yeah, but, but like I said, a lot of the cases I deal with where there's more than two people being taken or one person's being taken and, you know, you have several other people watching it going on. So um, I am not aware of any mental uh, condition that can cause that. Now, people will throw out the words, you know, mass hallucinations. Mass hallucination is actually a false term. Yes. It doesn't really exist. In other words, for mass hallucination or mass hysteria, is called a mob right. mentality. Right. You have to have a focus in a mob mentality. People all mad at a particular person want to lynch them for something. Right. Well, I mean, look, Glenn, I, you know what? I want to jump in here real quick, though, because a couple a couple of things to to clean up in the in the in the bit with the um. The mob mentality or mass hallucination, you know, that explanation has always struck me as really funny because until you can find a way to recreate these, right, to, you know, let's again, let's get scientific about it. If the skeptics want to get completely rational and scientific, you need to start um, producing some mass hallucinations for people that produce these same sorts of effects. And I'm not talking about like Doug Henning here. I'm talking about an effect where everybody would feel they were abducted, for instance, or everybody would feel like in my uh, family's situation, you know, like the sound of, of a ghost eventually came down the stairs at us, right? 
invent something like that and now now we're talking but that explanation is always to me sort of fallen short on a scientific level it's an idea it's not a um it's not really a reality it's not something that's testable and and so uh i i've kind of rejected that as well sleep paralysis i originally had written a uh, a thing and maybe i'll post it on my blog um but i'd written a thing that ended up sort of on the cutting room floor of the book in which I talked about that whole sleep paralysis idea that people are sleeping during their abductions, and I rejected that as well. Good for because you. Because <laughs> for the very reason you said, you know, it's it, I had heard 60%, I guess David Jacobs, um, one of the big abduction researchers, I forget the exact number he'd put it out. I remember it was between 60 and 70, um, happened when people were awake. Yeah. And, um, and it, my understanding is that Clancy, the lady who wrote her book on alien abductions, actually knew that. Yes. Um, but didn't write about that because it didn't fit with her thesis. Correct. You know, but <laughs> isn't that lovely? But I want to say something real quick about when I invoked the idea of a scientific, I mean, or a uh, psychological explanation. And again, I didn't take it very far in, in the book, but something that was on my mind because consciousness is a very, very fascinating topic to me. And we ex- I explore that a little bit in the book as well. I have mm-hmm. a chapter on that. Um, it, is it possible that people can enter some sort of altered state of consciousness in which these things happen, and and that it could be shared? Um, I, you know, now look, that idea is way out there, and it's also sort of you know not testable. It, sure, it, it is if they're hitting the same bong. Well, look, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if you're making fun of that or not, but I, I, I do believe it's possible, right? That. And and that's where the that whole idea of possibilianism comes in that I, I uh, mm-hmm. talk about a little bit in the introduction that, you know, we, we shouldn't be afraid to consider all the various possibilities, um, all the various explanations that might be involved. And, you know, when you do look at the history of people using uh, hallucinogens, you know, and not that I'm one of them, there's this there's this idea that they throw open the doors of perception, that there are other um, sort of realms accessible to us if only our consciousness would allow them in, that the brain sort of acts as a filter. Is it possible that when these things happen, um, it's really a case of people's filters being uh, broken down to some degree, and now they're able to interact with some other realm? I love that idea, right? Just as a writer and a kind of a a creative guy, it's still sort of horrifying to think that... (laughs) You, you might end up in some other realm of your consciousness and, and end up being sort of abducted in this way. But uh, gosh, man, I think that this stuff's, uh, these things are so mysterious and these possibilities to consider are so fascinating that we ought to do it. And, and that's what's good about, about this book, Fringology, is you actually make the case for people to at least consider those possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the, the things, I mean... Uh, I know it's hard for me to talk about this, and we can get more into this in the second hour coming up, but I have a lot of friends who claim to have psychic abilities, who have mediumship abilities, and, uh, and I don't know, I, I just have trouble buying it. I mean, as much as I've seen them make the connections and as much as I've seen them uh, you know, give people readings that have blown their minds, I, I just don't understand the mechanism of how it can work. And for the first time in this book, I started to open my mind up a little bit to the possibility that it can happen. And if, you know, if that can happen for me on something that I thought I was so close-minded about, then I can only imagine how it will open doors for some other people, uh, especially those who you know, poo-poo the idea of ghosts, uh, who, I, who 
try to use whatever available explanation they can to get out of admitting these possibilities. Yeah, one of the one of the um, ideas I find just sort of really fun to explore is, and, and it, we won't be around to see this. Uh, at least I don't think we will. But you know, a hundred years from now, what will the scientific conception of reality be? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at it over any uh, significant time span of thirty, forty, fifty years, it, it's changed relatively radically. Um, you know, in each of those increments. And the people who sort of cleave to what we know slash believe today scientifically is going to stay true. I mean, they're placing a bet that for the first time in human history, we're close to having it all figured out. And I find that a really um, dubious bet. I, I personally am not pushing my chips into that square. Because uh, that's just we we can't, we certainly can't know that at the moment, right? That I mean, there 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 is some faith involved in that position, um, and it, you know, of course, again, you know, the the sort of supreme rationalist among us won't admit that. Um, but I'm I'm not going there with them. I think that you know I hope to live as long as I can in in part because I want to see what we're going to uncover next, you know. But I mean, part I, of that too is our own arrogance of always thinking we're the most enlightened people that have ever existed in in this current moment. I don't think we're the most enlightened on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, um, I, we were talking actually in a staff meeting the other day about um, junk DNA because there's some people here locally who are doing experiments with DNA. Are you guys familiar with the whole junk DNA concept? Mm-hmm. I have my own DNA sequencer. Well. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, look, uh, scientists uh, found that they could they could sort of decode the, the, the DNA, but it's really only about 2% of what's available. And they, they assumed that the rest of the stuff, which sort of looked like gibberish to them, didn't mean anything. That's where the whole junk DNA idea came from. They couldn't understand it, therefore it served no purpose. They couldn't see the purpose that it was serving at the time – so, of course, it must be meaningless because we would be able to figure it out. And now they're starting to link um, some of this, uh, you know, this junk DNA to some specific uh, diseases, at least at, at first. We'll see what else they're able to link it to down the line. But, I mean, it just sort of shows you how we think as, as human beings. And, and as, you know, look, this, this could be, uh, what would French say? Uh, it's more dangerous to see meaning where there is none than it is to miss meaning when it's there. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, this is an example where uh, science disregarded this whole area and called it, you know, well, it's just junk DNA. It doesn't mean anything precisely because they couldn't see the meaning in it at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and now there are people who are seeing the meaning in it. It pays in this world, I think, to keep your powder dry. To, re- to You know what I mean? To remember that there's there's more to find out. There's more to learn. And don't be afraid to say those three words if I don't know because right. you know, the enlightening part isn't knowing. The enlightening part is getting to the point where you find out. Right. 
All right, well, we're going to take a break here. Uh, we're coming up against the network news. Uh, Steve, we're going to take a, a, about five minutes when we come back to speak to this woman about a fundraiser that's happening tomorrow, and then we'll get back into the discussion with you uh, about fringeology, how I tried to explain away the unexplainable and couldn't. And you mentioned your website uh, a little bit earlier, but it's stevevolk.com, and it's linked up on spookysouthcoast.com as well. And, of course, it's not just a site designed to help promote the book or help promote your work. It seems like it's a pretty frequently updated, uh, you know, with – stories that relate to the book and, and interesting things that come across the web that relate to the book. And uh, I'm looking forward to checking it out every day. Oh, thank you very much. By the way, this was the fastest hour of my life. You guys are fun. <laughs> well, uh, we got a whole other one coming up, so stay tuned. We'll be coming back after the news. Uh, again, we're going to talk really quickly uh, about a motorcycle ride that's happening tomorrow for charity. So if you've got a bike, you want to get out there and take part on, uh, with that. It's happening at 10 a.m. tomorrow on the Cape. We'll have the details in just a few minutes. And then more on Fringology with our guest tonight, Steve Volk. And, of course, we'll have the phone lines open, email, chat room. It'll all be available so you can talk to Steve coming up here in the second hour. So stay tuned for more here on Spooky South Coast. We have to get on. We have to get on. We have so much time and so little to do. Strike that. Reverse it. This way, please. Who's going to tell him? Well, let's not wake him. You'll find out soon enough. Let him have one last. Spooky South Coast is back. No one is safe. Hold on tight. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen. There's no earthly way of knowing. <laughs> Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we're going to get back into the discussion with tonight's guest, Steve Volk, on his book, Fringology, in just a moment. Uh, but first, we have a couple quick announcements we want to make. One, happy birthday to longtime listener Luann. It's her birthday today, and she's probably out celebrating instead of listening to the show. But Happy birthday. We'll say it to her anyway. She's, uh, she's one of our favorite people, one of our favorite investigators, and she's definitely going to be involved with our Bridgewater Triangle investigation show that's coming up on August 27th. So if you'd like to get involved, just send us an email, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. We've been hearing from a number of groups and individuals who want to take part. I know Chris is keeping track of everything and trying to put everything together. Uh, so just uh, email us, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com, with all your contact information, where you are, and you know what sites you think you can get to. That's probably the best way to do it because it's easier for us to keep track of everything via email. Uh, also, something else that we want to discuss is uh, tomorrow, the Cape Cod Cooperative Bank is the proud sponsor of the Mike Flick mo Motorcycle Run. It's uh, tomorrow. Uh, registration is from 10 to 11 a.m. at the Monument Beach Sportsman Club. That's at 199 MacArthur Boulevard in Bourne. It's $20, rain or shine. There might be some rain, but that's fine. No reason not to go out and have a good time. And right now we have Beth Kehoe Flick joining us on the line to discuss this. Uh, good evening, Beth. Thank you for joining us. And uh, it sounds like you're putting together a great event here in, in honor of your son. You know what? It turned into something far bigger than I could have possibly imagined, and I'm so excited. It's going to be a good time. Now, your son passed away last summer. He was involved in a motorcycle accident. He was. Uh, he was riding with um, another friend, 
and they each had a rider on the back, and riding down the service road, and someone made a U-turn in front of him. So, uh, thankfully, he was killed instantly, but um, he left a huge void in the life of an awful lot of people. So, this is, um, Mick was definitely someone who cared an awful lot about children, and uh, did an awful lot for children. I mean, just reading uh, the, the biography you have on the, the mcflick.com site, it, you mentioned so many of the different organizations that he that he worked with that he volunteered his time for, including the Boys and Girls Club. And oh, I'm sorry, what? Uh, all the different uh, organizations that he volunteered his time with. It, they're all you have them all up there on on the website, and it's it's amazing how much you know how many lives he was able to touch. Oh, you know it. Uh, I did not realize until, which is unfortunate, until the day of his funeral, wh- how many lives he touched. It it was mind-boggling. The people that had met him or come in contact with him, the children that he had mentored uh, and did things for just out of the kindness of his heart. Um, Mick grew up with the Boys and Girls Club. He was Youth of the Year there. He He volunteered his time. So um, he, he was quite an amazing young man, and I can't be prouder. So this is my way of continuing his legacy. And uh, there's going to be, in addition to the actual motorcycle run itself, there's also going to be a pig roast. Uh, there's going to be live music by the gimmicks, prizes, raffles, and a cash bar with tips to benefit the Wounded Warriors Project. I mean, when when you do have the opportunity to bring people together in someone's memory like this, I always say there's there's no tighter community uh, than those who who ride bikes. I mean, they they always look out for one another, they always take care of each other, and they protect their own. And uh, I think you're going to see a bunch of people come out en masse to to support the memory of your son, and uh, hopefully you can help uh, raise a lot of money for the Michael J. Flick Memorial Fund. I uh, you know what. We have already received thousands of dollars of donations just from people who can't attend, um, whether they've already are committed to another run. There's another run that's happening on the Cape that's phenomenal for the Duffy Health Center. And I didn't think I would be competing with them, but we have people that are going to both. So you're right. It is a very tight community. Um, it's, they're very generous people, and they love to have fun. And Mick was all about having fun. So, yeah, we're, we're going to feed people pig. We're, I'm sitting here with uh, our two pig roaster masters. Um, they're, we're deciding, you know, what time to meet up at the club, and we've decided it's going to be about 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. Um, and we're discussing all the food, and no one's going to go hungry. So. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> and that- they can come in. They can listen to a great band. I think the gimmicks are playing at um, the Hard Rock Cafe up in Boston tonight. So it's not, you know, it's a it's a band that's known. It's some good rock and roll, and it's going to be a good group of people. And a lot of energy. We we have listeners, of course, all over the world, uh, and I'm sure many uh, who won't be able to attend would like to give some sort of donation. Uh, how can they get uh, a check to you? Um, actually, on the website is uh, www.micflick.com. Uh, there's an address there. Okay, and we, we have that linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Thank you. Yeah, it's on. Um, it's easy to get to. Um, McFlick. Uh, or they can contact the Cape Cod Cooperative Bank. 
um, any of the branches because they they are our main, main sponsor. Um, they didn't even hesitate. They loved Mick, and uh, he did so much for them as well. He was in all their commercials. He did their um, uh, the Lama, um, Seaside Lamas. He always volunteered for that. He was a uh, driver for a couple of years in a row. Um, they instituted Jeans Day, and all the employees will pay to wear a pair of jeans at the bank, and that money is donated to a charity that Mick had decided it went to. Um, so, you know, a lot of people are definitely following his steps and trying to continue things that he started, which I think is really wonderful. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with everything tomorrow. Uh, again, it's at the uh, Monument Beach Sportsman's Club. Registration is from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. That's at 199 MacArthur Boulevard in Bourne, Mass. MickFlick.com is the website, M-I-C-F-L-I-C-K.com. Uh, thank you, Beth, for joining us. Good luck with everything, and uh, hopefully we'll see you down there. And if not, you know, that's just because it was raining and we ducked undercover. We grabbed our pig and hid. <laughs> well, we have indoor space, too, so we've got a ton of space there. No one's going to get wet. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, hopefully the weather cooperates, though. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. So, again, if you need any more of that information, just email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, and we'll forward it on to you. It is linked up at SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Well, let's get back into the discussion now with our guest tonight, Steve Volk. The book is called Fringology, How I Tried to Explain Away the Unexplainable and Couldn't. It's uh, published by Harper One, and it's uh, available now pretty much wherever you can get books. You'll be able to find it, except probably you don't want to go to Borders. <laughs> Time is running out on that one, although you can probably get some pretty good deals. But uh, uh, Actually, might... Borders would be a good place for a ghost hunt right about now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And uh, the, the, the good thing about it, though, is uh, when, when you can get a publisher like Harper One to, to get behind just the word paranormal, <laughs> it shows that we're making progress. Yeah, you, you know, I, I just want to say something about that really quick. I am really sort of just grateful to them. Uh, we had, you know, just to give you a little insight into this, I mean, when we put the proposal out, me and my agent, we actually did get a fair amount of interest. But, you know, there was just a lot of concern about the fact that this guy wants to do a mainstream book about a book that's not considered a mainstream, a mainstream book about a subject that's not considered mainstream. And, um, you know, so there was reticence on some people's parts, but Harper One was one of the publishers who stepped up, and I mean, I was really excited to be with uh, the Harper Collins, you know, imprint. And it, and it has certainly opened some doors because some people are really sort of like, whoa, a book on the paranormal from Harper Collins, that's, that's different. That's cool. Well, when, when you did approach them with this idea, uh, were they involved in kind of the direction at all or is, is this completely your vision of how you wanted to handle the, the subject matter I'll tell you what I, I would think you know my editor made a lot of contributions but his contributions were toward me realizing my vision of what I wanted the book to be I mean I there was no uh, interference which is you know just terrific we were talking off the air myself and, and my co-host Matt Moniz were talking about how uh, normally when we read a book uh, you know in the paranormal world they try to present both sides but it's always like the other side is an afterthought. And in Fringology, you just pl play everything straight down the middle. You, you're, you know, you're an objective journalist uh, to the very end. But at the same time, you do bring in a lot of that 
personal aspect of it. And you, you kind of hinted a little bit at the beginning of it uh, how you had your own personal ghost story. I don't know if you want to get into that too much here on the sure. air, if you want to save it for the book. Uh, no, 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 no. If you, there's, there's, uh, let me go ahead and, and give sort of uh, the, the version I've been given. And, um, and believe me, there's more beyond this uh, in the book. Um, so essentially the, what started all this for me, in a way, you know, this, the book started when I was six. Because um, we had, um, you know, I was six years old when this stuff happened. And what it was was a, a loud sort of thumping, thudding sound um, that me and my brother thought was coming from the roof over our heads. And our sisters on the other side of the house thought was coming from somewhere high up in the walls of their room. Um, it didn't fit with any of the mundane explanations that, that you know, you'd leap toward, right? So a water hammer or some malfunction in the water pipes or the house settling. This noise was really loud and it would go on a long time, long minutes, tens of minutes, and it only happened at night. Um, and I can honestly say, like, you know, my, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I mean, she did not leave the house during the day. So it just, it never happened at any other time. And, um, which is, uh, you know, p- part of this. My sister's complained of really outrageous things happening other than this noise um, that the covers were pulled from their beds, that the beds would shake as if something was grabbing the frames and twisting it left and right um, that an old woman would walk straight through the room and and out the closed door so uh, my parents though they focused on the noise because that was something they thought they could at least wrap their heads around and it was waking them up out of bed you know once sometimes a couple times a week and uh, they couldn't find a way to recreate it. They, they couldn't find an explanation for it. So after about nine months, maybe a year, my father went to the family priest. We were practicing Catholics at the time. And he told him what was going on, and the priest came over to bless the house. Now, this isn't an exorcism. It's like the blessing ceremony that Catholics go through when they first move into a, a new place. So he comes over, and I, I can re- I really remember that so vividly, seeing you know, Big Father Crowley come stalking through the house, sprinkling holy water and praying in Latin, and um, throwing holy water in the corners. That night, after he blessed the house, things were actually worse uh, than ever before. The noise came back you know, louder and longer, and we were scared. We ran downstairs to where our parents slept. Our parents, of course, were already awake, and they were thinking of leaving the house for the night. Um, when the noise did something it, it had not done before, it moved and it assumed like a precise location at the top of the stairs, and then it came down. My my dad describes it as sounding like a really big kid throwing a tantrum, hitting each stair as hard as it could. And when it got to the bottom, it did this big sort of two-footed dismount. You could feel the floor shake, and that was it. That was the last we ever heard of it. And But you did step kind of back into the ghostly world uh, prior to the writing of this book, spending some time with Lou Gentili. Yeah, I was wondering if you guys were familiar with Lou. Oh, yeah. um, I really, really miss him. Uh, Lou passed away, and I would still be going out with Lou from time to time if he was here and healthy, um, because I found him to be really reputable and really great about understanding. Like, if there were some odd noises in some place we were, 
um, he understood that that's what they were. They were odd noises, you know. Um, he wouldn't necessarily leap to that's a ghost, you know. And and um, I really appreciated that. I went out with a guy after that who who was claiming to see like witches in the window, <laughs> hmm. and there was just nothing there, you know. And um, so I mean, I've been on both sides of the equation with people who are highly imaginative, and then someone like Lou who was really to me, you know, very credible and, and just kind of out to explore and, and have a good time hanging out together in some really weird places. And um, we had a great time. So, yeah, I, I reentered that world, went on some investigations with him. And, um, and I also, you know, looked a little deeper into the family ghost story. And I talked to the families that moved in to our house after us. And I'll, I'll use that as a tease. People, people can come to the book to read that. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, I, I have to say, like, one of the things I, I'll continue to do in the future, although I haven't yet, I'll get back out again and and go to some, uh, you know, some haunted places. I just haven't had a chance to, like, hook up with anybody. W- one of the things I've found with that, guys, is that the just the fun of exploring, of sort of putting yourself out there is worth it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good time. And one of the things about Lou Gentili that always struck me, and I, I had contact with him. You know, when we first started this show, he offered me a lot of advice. And mm-hmm. but one of the things that always struck me about him is if you listen to him talk, especially if you listen to his show, you would think that he was uh, just a, a hardline true believer because of the passion that he brought to it. Right. And it wasn't until you really listened and you, you heard him get very analytical and very critical of what was being brought to the table that you realized that he wasn't somebody that accepted everything at face value. But when he did believe in something, he believed in it passionately. Yes, and 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 the other thing, the thing that one of the things he and I really sort of bonded around is, um, and, and look, we ran into. I went out with him and ran into people who were clearly misinterpreting natural phenomena, right, mm-hmm. according to their beliefs, and and claiming it was a ghost. But when skeptics fall back on that as like sort of the explanation, the thing that explains it all, they're kidding themselves. Uh, it's the only they just either never experienced it for themselves or or whatever. But they're it, that does not explain everything that's going on. There's something far more complicated uh, at at work in in some cases. And I just wish that you know one of the things I do in the book is I try and explore some of the more exotic, but but probably still sort of materialistic sort of theories. Like Persinger, Michael Persinger, with his theory of electromagnetic energy interacting with the temporal lobe, which I, you know, I don't think necessarily these would explain it all either. Um, or infrasound, Vic Tandy's thing about sound beneath the the range of normal human hearing that this can also create hallucinations and a feeling of a sense of presence. If the skeptics would at least admit that, at worst, there's more to learn about the natural world by looking into these things and grant uh, people who are issuing these reports the dignity of um, being somewhat accurate in what they're describing, we'd have made, we'll have made huge, huge progress, right? Um, because that is one of the absolute kind of worst-case scenario for believers is that they're pointing at something truly anomalous that will help people learn more about the world. But too often, I don't think the skeptics are even willing to admit that. 
Well, I think the, the, the <laughs> biggest problem to that is, you know, if we find a uh, if we find a root cause, say, say we find one easy to, to, to explain, one root cause that covers everything possibly considered paranormal, we can explain it as X. Mm-hmm. Well, then the believers can always say, well, we always knew that we were experiencing something. We just didn't know what. Right. And here we go. If, if the inverse turns out to be opposite and it turns out that it actually is aliens, ghosts, psi abilities, and everything else, then it's the skeptics who run the risk of having everything that they ever worked for blow up in their face. Right. You know, it's, e- it's easy and for I the believers. You, well, you know, you mentioned something earlier about uh, Radford being somebody who's it, it, willing to say that he, he hopes to be wrong. He hopes to come across something that's paranormal. I'll say a couple quick things here. I've heard a number of skeptics say that. James Randi makes that claim, right? Mm-hmm. Radford's a little different for me because I heard him talking about the chupacabra and I could hear the enthusiasm in his voice. Like I think that he would – it struck me that, you know what, this guy actually would love it if, if there were monsters somewhere. You know, He'd really enjoy that. But I think for, for the most part, like when I hear Susan Blackmore say it or Randy – they're just I don't I don't believe it for an instant. Yeah. I, I believe that you know once you've invested ten or twenty years or more, like in Randy's case, of a career making a certain claim, for for you to then claim that oh I'd love to be wrong. I'd love it if this this forty year career I've been invested in turns out you know that I'm on the wrong side of history. That'd be great. Please, yeah. no, uh uh-uh. uh, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. It comes down to this. You know who the Wright brothers are, right? Yeah. You know who stepped on the moon first, right? Yeah. Do you know the names of the people that said man will never fly? I do not know their names, <laughs> okay, but I know they're out there. That's a great you, thing. You know, and, I, and I've read about them several times because I enjoy that, you know, that sort of stuff, right? It goes back to like the junk DNA idea, you know? We'll never fly. This is just junk DNA. People who thought, you know, that that we already knew what was possible. Well, but, yeah, no, I don't know their names. <laughs> but th- that's my point. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's the point. And Randy will, in a 100 years, he may be completely unknown. Well, I mean, I think that the Million Dollar Challenge will always at least keep his name in, in the history books. But, uh, you know, the the fact is, I mean, basically he's made his career out of belittling and openly belittling many people. And, and a lot of these skeptics do that. They can't come to the debate uh, ready to accept any other position but their own, and in doing so, they actually turn you know, angry and they, they, they bring ire to the conversation. And, and when I'm happy to engage a, a skeptic in debate any time, but when they start to bring down that wrath where they're just not going to listen to anything at all, then that's, they're doing themselves a disservice. Then they're not a skeptic. Uh, as, like I said, they're not a skeptic. Yeah. They're what? Cynic. Correct. <laughs> and we've dealt with plenty of those. Well, Steve, in, in the book, when you start talking about uh, the idea of what could open up these, these avenues for paranormal phenomena, you know, what is, you get into everything from what is the nature of consciousness to, you know, is there a God? It's a lot of heavy stuff to cover in, in one book, but you do it in a very light and easy to understand way. One of the things that I was probably the most amazed at was how easy you were able to boil down the idea of quantum mechanics <laughs> to a point where I could actually read about it in one chapter and come away with an understanding. Yeah. <laughs> you must have had some help with that one. <laughs> Well, I got to tell you, that was so hard. I, I mean, I, and I, 
there were two quantum physicists that I was able to send my material to, and you know, and I made changes based on their um, advice, and so that was very helpful. And one of them said to me, "Wow, I can't believe you can explain it, you know, this well and this colorfully." And that was a real, um, that was a tremendous compliment. Uh, but for for me, the quantum physics stuff. It's so fascinating because it's another one of those issues where in a hundred years we may look back on on this point in our history and um, be totally – you know, one side or the other may be sort of totally embarrassed by the, the position they took. And you know, I, I, the way I've been putting it and thinking about it, um, Deepak Chopra claims that when we're not looking at the moon, it's quantum soup, <laughs> right? And uh, Lawrence Krauss – uh, basically says, you know, there's there's no real mystery here. There's nothing here that that will change our philosophy. We have a very good understanding of quantum physics, and there's there's nothing here that should overturn our our conception of the world. And I think they're both being tremendously presumptuous. You know, there are there are mysteries there. There might be another revolution coming in physics um, that may make the world seem even stranger or may tip it back to a more deterministic view. We simply do not know yet. And people are placing their bets, and sometimes they're placing their bets you know, really violently and loudly <laughs> on, mm-hmm. on how it's going to turn out. But the real truth of it is you know, we, we really don't know yet. And so the whole, the whole quantum physics um, debate that goes on to me is one of the most um, fun areas of this. Uh, in part because because I think people really reveal themselves in a way, like they reveal what their ultimate vision of the world is through how they interpret quantum mechanics. I'm not sure they really reveal much about quantum mechanics, but they reveal themselves. Well, and you do mention in the book that a lot of true believers have kind of already hung their hat on that as explaining why this stuff happens. And, you know, they're backing the horse in that race before they really fully understand the field. And I, I don't know. I, I can tell you a personal story. I had never really heard the meat and potatoes of quantum mechanics uh, until the second episode of this program back in 2006. We began this show with the idea of we're going to explore the paranormal and try to help get to some of the answers. And the guests that we had in week two of the program started talking about quantum mechanics in such a way that he was telling us, you don't have to explore that question anymore. Here's the answer. Here's the solution right here. And uh, <laughs> it just seems so many people are, are already you know, uh, fully investing themselves in that theory. And, you know, you never know. I mean, one of these people or many of these people could turn out to be right. We just don't really know for sure yet. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I spent a lot of time in the book with um, Anton Zellinger. Yes. And and what I really appreciate about Zellinger is that he, um, he, he gets it. You know, like he's working with philosophers to help him devise experiments to better determine the nature of reality and what it is that quantum mechanics actually has to say about the nature of reality. And I really respect that because he's one of the guys who's sort of keeping his powder dry, right? Who's saying that there's just more to learn here and let's get about it. And and when they are willing to to incorporate those other viewpoints into their work, and you mentioned a, a number of different, uh, you know, avenues where there's someone who has a theory and they're willing to incorporate someone else's point of view into that theory. Uh, and 
if it isn't for those connections that they make, they might not be able to further their own work. Just imagine if that wall was dropped between the skeptics and the believers and they were able to uh, work together instead of argue how much progress could be made. You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the th- other things that sort of uh, kind of informed the book for me, although I, I didn't do much with it, um, you know, in in the actual published version, but um, uh, who was it? It was Weissman and um, Marilyn Schlitz from IONS who had gotten together and done some collaborative studies. You know, she, she'd be the believer in the scenario. He'd be the skeptic. And they did some studies on the sense of being stared at. Are you guys familiar with those? Mm-hmm. You are? I've, I've heard a little bit uh, of it mentioned. It was actually yeah. e- somebody emailed me about it uh, not that long ago. Uh, and it's one, whenever anybody sends me an email, you know, I kind of gloss over it because usually it's somebody kind of pushing something. Right. Uh, but in this regard, it seemed like it was, you know, just uh, an informed listener who was trying to just share the information. Well, it was, it's, it's a really terrific series of studies they did because, you know, you, you've got them now reaching across party lines, so to speak, to work on something together. And the first two experiments they did show that people, you know, to a, a level of statistical significance, right, were able to predict beyond what, what chance would allow when it was that they were being stared at and when they weren't. And... um Put simply, like, you know, just imagine you're sitting there in a chair and there's a camera, you know, let's say eight feet behind you and someone is in another room that's sealed off from you and they're either looking at you through the camera at over the course of a minute or they're not. And you need to be able to say every minute, was I being stared at this minute or wasn't I? And so we're really talking about a 50-50 proposition here, but people were, you know, to a, a, a good level of significance to where Wiseman even had to admit at this point it looks like something's going on. They did a third study that showed no effect. And now if you did a meta-analysis on these, there's still some effect present, right? Something seems to be going on. And they talk about that sort of decline effect within um, parapsychology that, you know, people get bored with the study. It was actually up to Schlitz to be the one staring. She would sit there and, you know, and, and people get bored with it, right? And so is that why people weren't sensing they were being stared at anymore or not? You know, we don't really know. But I, I look at that collaboration and it's now many years old. And I think, you know, th- that's the kind of thing that should be going on. And to me, if skeptics were really more interested in exploring this, if they didn't think they had the answer already, there would be more of this going on. Well, we have uh, about 20 minutes left in the show. I want to open up the phone lines if uh, anybody wants to call in with a question. 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. Those are the numbers. You can also jump into the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. You can email us, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com, or you can e- uh, you can text us, sorry, 508 508- Four 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 two six six one. That's our text line. Uh, and there's any many different ways to get your questions in, so line. feel free to do that. I'm sorry. The boo line. The boo line, yes, as we call it. And uh, I, I think that, uh, as you mentioned, you know, in the book, with the idea of that paranormal taint, that people who come forward and talk about this, they do have that stigma attached with them. But there are some people who have maybe the the character uh, to 
override that, the, the kind of the name recognition to override that. And I know you don't directly com- compare and contrast them in the book, but you talk about Edgar Mitchell, who's a guy who's talked about his, yeah. you know, uh, en- enlightened consciousness, uh, and he's been able to discuss these matters without really suffering a hit to his reputation. And then somebody like Elizabeth Kula-Ross, who actually had a, a belief in this stuff, mar her reputation in her later years. Actually, if I may, I would just say the distinction between them. I mean, Mitchell, and I write this in the book, is somebody who still takes huge hits from the skeptics. I mean, huge hits. And and I also say in there that you know none of his fellow astronauts um, talked about him for me. I don't I don't get any of the reasons for that. But you know, I wasn't able to get anyone else to talk. So I I do believe that his reputation has taken a hit. What but, I, but the what mainstream I, public is willing to accept, you know, what what he's selling. To to a, yeah, to, to a great extent. I mean, I, I would just say to me here is the interesting distinction between them. Cooler Ross was really rattled by how people responded to her in endorsing the near death experience, and she consequently started looking for some kind of proof that was so dramatic that people couldn't deny it. And she really strayed at that point beyond the boundaries of science. I mean, she wasn't doing studies at this point. She was literally just sort of visiting with channelers and the table would raise up in the air and she'd go, that's incredible, you know. And um, she ended up being the victim of a really long con over many years. What I really love about Edgar Mitchell is he had enough faith in himself that the criticism he received – didn't seem to rattle him. Mm-hmm. And from what I can see, having met him and talked to him about it, I can't, I, I can't express to you the degree to which he seemed bored by the idea that people are criticizing him. <laughs> it just like, it just didn't dent him at all from, from what I could see. It was very impressive. And he's stuck with, you know, through the Institute of Noetic Sciences and through the work he's done, He's stuck with the idea of trying to develop in a very meticulous, patient way forms of scientific evidence that, that will you know, turn the tide. And, and I do think that IONS, Dean Radin, who works at IONS, Schlitz, who works at IONS, these are probably the people who are, who are doing more than anyone else to turn that tide and, and to open people's minds. Mm-hmm. And so Edgar Mitchell to me, I mean, I just very, very taken with him, very, very impressed. You don't have to agree with everything that comes out of the guy's mouth to understand that um, he's made a big contribution even since returning to Earth from space. Yeah, you know, I mean, he can, he can always pull that card out too if he has to. If people, you know, challenge him enough, he can always just say, how much time have you spent in space? NASA, bitch, recognize. Well, I, I have to tell you, that was such an, an experience to shake the hand that had been on the moon. I mean, it just – it's its really impressive. I mean, his family history – I love that chapter of the book. It's one of my favorite sections of the book. His family history, 100 years from covered wagons to walking on the moon. That's, that's the story of, of Edgar Mitchell and his family. What a tremendous statement about – and that's why I say again, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned a couple times one of the themes of fringology is who knows what we'll know even 20 years from now, let alone 40, 50, or 100. Wow. Well, we do have a question We're, from the chat room. 
Okay. Uh, and uh, Low Battery Dave wants to know where you think the research will go if there isn't more of a grasp of a skeptical point of view. I'm not sure what he means by that. If there isn't more of a grasp of a skeptical point of view, like if we don't get a little more skeptical, where will the research go? Yeah, I mean, uh, we, I mean we see a lot of the uh, the mainstream media, uh, the way that they treat the subject matter, and uh, I think his question relates yeah. in, on the idea of, you know, if, if true believers don't at least try to show some degree of that skepticism, are, are people going to take their research seriously? No, I mean, I, I think we'll spin our wheels. I mean, I, I think that we'll be left with taps and, you know, these sort of ghost hunting shows as being the, the sort of the the most recognized paranormal research, Mm -hmm. which, you know, would be unfortunate because I think that as soon as you start peeling back the covers and really looking into it, I mean, as you guys obviously know, like for instance, telepathy, I mean, there's hundreds of seemingly well-controlled studies that show some sort of small telepathy effect. I mean, I think more and more if possible, that needs to be the face of paranormal research, you know. There's a guy named David Roundtree who's doing some interesting work with hauntings and ghosts and trying to show sort of physical effects. And he's he strikes me as a figure who's sort of just getting started. But there's some hope there. There's a guy named Barry Colvin who I write about in my book who claims to have found a different signature uh, to sounds produced by um, – in poltergeist cases than would be produced by you and me. Mm-hmm. Um, so – that kind of stuff is where I think it needs to go. Well, and here's another question from the chat room. Spectre wants to know, uh, considering you know how many different scientists you've spoken to in the course of writing Fringology, but what evidence could ever satisfy the scientific community on ghosts as there cannot by definition be any physical evidence? That's a great question, and I think that one of the things we need to be open to is that possibility that there might be some things that simply sit outside the capabilities of science and will forever sit outside the capabilities of science to uncover. So um, that is entirely possible. It's something, again, I wish, you know, I wish people were prepared to admit, but, you know, most of them aren't. Um, To me, well, the kind of research I was just name-checking, like the Colvin thing, I'd like to see somebody... Uh, replicate that, you know, and and other people sort of take up that kind of research. Well, if you've recorded an anomalous sound, is there something about it that is different than, you know, can you recreate it? And if you can recreate something that sounds exactly the same, is there something about the sort of the acoustic properties of the sound that will show up as something anomalous? Colvin's claiming he's done this. So, um, you know, we'll see over time whether or not anybody else does anything with it. Well, it's it's kind of like the the Doctor Strange love approach, you know, how I learned to stop worrying and there's a mind shaft guy starting to love the atomic <laughs> bomb here because what w- what it is is I, you know, when I first got seriously involved in the paranormal and we went out and did investigations and everything, my intention was I wanted to capture the best piece of evidence that was going to convince everybody that I ever showed it to that ghosts were real. I was going to be the hopefully be the person that would prove that to everybody, and then I started to realize, you know what? I believe it. I proved it to myself. That's enough. I realize that whatever is there, it's not behaving according to the rules that we think that we know. So I can either wait for us to catch up to it, or I can just experience it in my own way and kind of just share the stories anecdotally with people. Yeah, I have to tell you, I think that's a perfectly rational response. You know what I mean? Like, I think that... 
I, I think that um, it's there comes a point, and even if we do it more privately than publicly or you know whatever, like you, you're kind of doing that. I mean, you proved it to yourself. There comes a point where we need to allow ourselves to believe, and I think that there's lots of paranormal beliefs that can be good for us. You know, um, I, I think that the belief that there's something after this, that there's some meaning to life can be very, very helpful and beneficial. And um, I, I do think, however, that we just need to remember that it's a belief, it's not knowledge. And to try and put on the, the cap sometimes, like put on that different hat, in which you sort of remind yourself of that, that like, you know, this is a belief I hold, it's not something I know well enough that I can show someone else evidence that will convince them. Um, and that means I need to at least be open to when I hear other ideas, you know, to, to explore those. And I hope that seems consistent to people because I think it's hard to do. You know, it's a challenge to hold two conflicting beliefs at once or to even challenge your own beliefs. But I think it's very important for us to be willing to do that. You mentioned life after death, and one of my favorite, you know, you don't spend much time on it in the book, but I forget which which researcher it was, but the theory is that there there is life after death, but then that life ends, and then there's nothing. Yeah, I, that one knocked me out, right? Because I, I hadn't really thought of that before, like the idea that there could be some more life beyond what we know, and then that will come to an end, and you're snuffed out like a candle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just never had considered that possibility. And again, when we talk about that, you know, sort of possibilionism, look, I mean, that's that's another thing that, you know, that, that could be. Um, and I have to tell you, one of the things I found really interesting when I went to the parapsychology conference in uh, Seattle um, was the degree to which people were talking about the difficulties of establishing that mediumship is happening between, you know, that living psychic and the deceased person rather than, um, you know, the, the living person that's connected to the deceased one. You know what I mean? That mm -hmm. they're doing the reading for. That it's not just sort of some kind of psychic ability to tap into um, the thoughts of the living. That it, it's real communication with the dead. I mean, it's, it's tricky. To, you know, to test these sorts of things in a scientific way is, is a massive challenge. But, of course, the scientific way has to be the way it's proved or else the scientists won't believe it themselves, as Matt well knows. I don't know if, uh, if Chris, when he was discussing with you uh, our show, if he told you our background, but Matt's an actual scientist by trade, and, and he goes right. up against this every day. You know, he's in the middle of this skeptic versus believer debate, you know, just having donuts at work. Well, <laughs> no, seriously, uh, every laboratory I've worked in, I've – made no bones about letting them know what I'm into on, you know, my off hours. And, of course, you get the, the snickering, the, the snide comments and remarks when, when everybody's in, you know, the, the group. Then once the group disappears, they'll come up to my desk or my bench where I'm working. Yep. You know, I had this happen. I saw this. I don't believe I, it, but. but. Yeah. And they're always looking, what have you got lately? Can you show me your latest? You know, they were all intrigued and fascinated. Just, you know, I got no explanation for that. And yet, when you go back into the lunchroom, it's the, you know, they all get back into their same little click. And they don't realize that, you know, Johnny's come up to me and said stuff. And, sure. you know, it's like, but sure. You, you know well, what I'm talking about. The other issue, too, is and sometimes you can show people evidence and they still won't 
believe it. And um, one of my favorite, uh, other favorite chapters of the book, St- Stephen LeBurge um, and Lucid Dreaming, um, he he developed evidence that lucid dreaming is real, that people can be conscious while they're asleep and and uh, consciously choose their actions within the dream and sometimes even gain control of the dream world. I mean, I've had... Dude, I've had mutant past since I learned to lucid dream. Like I could make a door slam from a distance. It's awesome. <laughs> I, you know, I've I've had a few experiences myself, and and it's pretty, it's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, it's it's it was it was so amazing. And I you know I haven't had one now for a little more than a month, which is the longest I've gone without one in a while, and I'm and I'm missing it. But anyway, Leburge developed really ironclad evidence, and um, couldn't get it published in any of the most prestigious journals he wanted to. And one of the referees sent back the comment that um, essentially, uh, you know, I can't find anything wrong with this, but there must be. (laughs) And, and therefore I'm recommending against printing it. I mean, that's, that's the real world, everybody. Like science is not a perfect self-correcting system as long as the people operating it are not perfect and self-correcting. You find more biases, personal biases in science than most people realize. Like I said, I work in the field. Yeah. And it and it has nothing to do with paranormal stuff. I watch it on regular everyday stuff in the laboratory. I don't like this set of results, so I'm not going to believe it. There's got to be the instrument is wrong. You know, not not that your theory about what was going to happen with this reaction is is wrong. It's the instrument that's wrong. Isn't that because you're all a bunch of nerds and science is all you have? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. You know, I, I do remember, particularly when I was in college, um, some of my friends getting disillusioned, like biology majors and stuff, because they were starting to work and help their professors with their research. And they would see them throw out data for no good reason. And, and But the reason was that they didn't like it. Happens every day. Yeah. Yeah, welcome to the real world, right? I mean, and, and so it, it's so galling to me when I hear people cons- constantly presenting this sort of idealized version of what science is. Um, and, I, and I think that if they were to embrace, right, the deficiencies of how science is actually conducted – they would find sort of more fellow feeling in a way with their common man, right? Like that's the, the common ground we all stand on is that anything that happens to us, we're going to interpret it according to what we believed before this thing happened. Or what we were that's taught what, to believe, yes. What's that, sorry? Or what we were taught to believe. Right, right. And that's the common ground we all stand on. And I, and I try and emphasize that a lot in the book too, that we can come together. We do not have to be divided by the labels were divided by absolutely well i gotta ask you this though now with with putting together this book and like i said and i stand by this it's going to be one of the groundbreaking books in the paranormal uh for many years to come but i, I gotta ask you are you going to stick with more books in this vein or there are just many other topics that journalistically you want to explore there there are other topics i want to explore journalistically but i'm not going away so excellent um, it might be a while till there's some sort of sequel, but um, and certainly I'll continue to do stuff in the meantime in shorter formats, um, you know, involving the paranormal. Um, but the next book or two may not, you know, may not hit this. 
But steveoak.com um, will always have something up there. Yes, definitely. And, and um, you know, follow me on uh, Twitter as well, at uh, Steve Volk, because I, uh, when I come across something interesting, you know, I also tweet it out. So, uh, But, yeah, I'm going to stick with this stuff. I mean, I think that one of the nice things for me, I'm not going to name the – there's a publication, there's a, a TV uh, possibility, there's – um, somebody else who just reached out to me that's from a, a sort of a, a, a big national sort of publication who uh, picked this up. They were very skeptical about it. They enjoyed it. Maybe they're going to end up working with me on something. So maybe you'll see me get the opportunity to um, put more stories like this out there in different formats through um, you know, uh, sources that don't normally do this sort of thing. And that would be, I think, you know, very positive for everyone and for the field. So we'll see if any of that manifests. Well, if we can help you with anything, feel free to call on us. Please do, man. I'm actually, I was thinking to myself as we were winding down here, I was like, I'm going to have to get back in touch with these guys by email and just arrange a time to like chat a little more. Absolutely. We'd love that. And uh, if you're ever in the Boston Providence area, you know, we'll, we'll take you out Lou Gentilly style. (laughs) Oh, that would be sweet. That'd be totally sweet. Nice. We'll definitely hook up. And uh, again, the book is called Fringology, How I Tried to Explain Away the Unexplainable and Couldn't. And just the fact that you can admit that in the title, I I predict it's going to be a huge, huge success. And and good luck with everything in the future. Again, stevevolk.com is the website. It's linked up on spookysouthcoast.com as well. Steve, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, and have a great night, everybody. You too. And next week, we'll be back uh, on the air. I think we're going to be on after the Red Sox. We're going to have the amazing Joe Who. Joe Who? Joe Who. That's all you need to know. And uh, Chris Balzano has spoken to him, our content director, and he is the one that put the amazing in his name because Chris was blown away by the discussion he had with Joe Who. What can Joe Who see for you? Find out next week when we come back with more. Uh, We'll be all over the place as usual, uh, you can get to us uh, on Twitter, on Facebook. You can email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. You can get all of our past shows on the website and through iTunes. And, of course, that Boo line, you can reach us all week long, 508-444-BOO1. That's 508-444-2661. And uh, definitely stay tuned for next week's show. I'm excited because I don't usually ask for readings from the the guest, but I think I might have to because if he impressed Chris that much, I got to put Joe Who to the test. So uh, we'll be back with more. And I, want, I don't know if he's a doctor, Moniz. So I don't know if he's Doctor Who. Doctor Who. But oh. we'll stick with the Joe Who <laughs> until then. Not Cindy Lou Who, as uh, they're mentioning in the chat room. So we'll be back with that program coming up. Don't forget to tune into Spirit Connections with Tiffany Rice Tuesdays at 9 p.m. on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com as well. So until next week, for Matt Moniz. For Matt Costa and for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg, and we want you all to stay spooktacular.